Be turning, if you will, over to Micah chapter 6. And while you're turning over there, I want you to think about, um, uh, have you ever witnessed an indictment? In particular, the picture I'm trying to get you to think of is, have you ever been in a courtroom or been in a situation where an indictment has been brought against somebody, you know, witnesses have been called, a testimony is given, and then some kind of judgment is rendered? I know for me personally, uh, there's just been one instance in my life where that's happened. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I was uh, assaulted by someone. I was actually uh, bitten on the nose uh, in an altercation. Uh, there's a person who lived near where I was living uh, at the time, and it was causing some trouble. He was drunk and got out of line and proceeded to try and uh, calmly talk him down and stop him from what he was doing. And he did not like what I had to say and thought he was going to spit on me. And instead of spitting on me, I, you know, I closed my eyes. He reached out and bit me, and uh, we had a little altercation after that that was not so pleasant. Uh, after the ensuing hospital stay and all the other fun things that go along with being bitten in the nose, uh, charges were pressed, and uh, you know there were hearings and uh, trial and everything in court. And uh, you know, it was very interesting. You know, there were lawyers involved. Uh, some of the witnesses of the event were called and gave their testimony of it. Ultimately, uh, was found guilty of it, and uh, there was a little bit of uh, community service and jail time that was, uh, was handed down to him as a sentence out of that. Um, kind of framing that picture, I, I don't know what uh, personal experiences you might have to, to go along with that, but uh, what's the thing about what if God brought an, an indictment against us? What if God actually brought charges against us for something that we did against him? And if you look towards this passage here in Micah, that's exactly what it's talking about in Micah chapter 6. We see here in these, these verses, we're going to look tonight at Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. We see here the Lord actually bringing in an indictment against the children of Israel. And if you'll read along with me, we'll read through these eight verses here. We'll go back and to dig into some of the details and see what exactly this indictment is. We'll see why why is God suing the children of Israel, and what and what do they learn from this? And then after we see that, what can we learn from it? Let's take a look at Micah chapter six. We'll start in verse one. It says, "Hear what the Lord says: Arise, please your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth." For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So we go back and we... Break this down. You know, this is such a short passage, but there's a, there's really a lot going on here. You kind of got to dig into a little bit to get to get some of these details of what's happening. The first five verses here, verses one through five, is really the indictment. 
So the first couple of verses is God calling his witnesses. And I think it's interesting that the picture that's painted here, you know, God is bringing, bringing this indictment against the people of Israel. And the first thing he does is he calls witnesses. And look at the witnesses that he calls. He's calling the mountains and the foundations of the earth. And, you know, if you think about that, it's really interesting, you know, the foundations of the earth, the mountains, these are, these are steadfast, immovable objects. You know, you think about Mount Everest, Mount St. Helens, you know, these different huge mountains. You know, they've always seemed to have been there. They're always there. You know, they don't, they don't move a whole lot. You know, nothing happens to them. They aren't going away. The idea that's presented here is these, these things have been here since the foundation of the world. They've witnessed everything that God has done in relation to the children of Israel. So he's calling them as witnesses to hear this case that he's going to make against them. You know, they're timeless. They've always been there. They have witnessed everything. Uh, yeah. So right off the bat, you know, how can, how can Israel possibly come up with a defense against that kind of uh, witness? I mean, the mountains, you know, they've always been there. They've always seen every act that God's done to them. Um, so they're already kind of in trouble just in the first couple of verses. Um, and then we move from there into verses 3 through 5, and we see the actual, the actual lawsuit there in 3 through 5. And it's, it's a little, you kind of have to dig into it a little, it's almost uh, just a little bit difficult to see what's going on here. The main idea is that God is saying, what have I done to you that, that has made you become tired of me? And we've got to have a little bit of history and context here to kind of help us understand. Uh, the particular time that Michael was prophesying, he was uh, prophesying about the same time as Isaiah. And at this particular time in, in the history of the people, uh, there was lots of oppression. There was lots of injustice, lots of violence, lots of lying, just a general sense of wickedness um, and really kind of an, uh, just an ignorance of God and the things that, uh, that he taught in his law. They just didn't place a lot of importance on it. And because of that, you know, he's bringing this lawsuit against these, you know, what have I done to you that would – that would make you treat me the way you're treating me? Why are you treating my law this way? Why are you being deceitful and wicked and, and oppressing other people? And he proceeds to state his case. He says, well, you know, I've called these witnesses. Here are the things that I have done for you. You know, in verse 4, he, he, called, he called, recalls to memory uh, the great act of salvation that he gave them in liberating them from Egypt. You know, remember the story of those ten plagues. They, they crossed the Red Sea brings them out of, out of Egypt, brings them out of slavery, gives them freedom, and, and helps to lead them into a nation of their own people, helps fulfill those promises that he had originally made to Abraham. He's reminding them of that. He said, I've, I've done that for you. This is something that I've done for you. He's then saying, you know, he goes on, he says, not only did I do that for you, not only did I deliver you, I gave you leaders. I gave you inspired leaders. I gave you prophets. I gave you people to help lead you and show you the law, teach you the law, help you follow the law. I gave you Moses. I gave you Aaron. I gave you Miriam. You know, even Miriam was a prophetess. If you remember back in Exodus, there are a few verses here and there that talks about how she prophesied about different things. So, you know, not only was salvation given, but also people were provided to help lead them to follow God and understand God's word. On top of that, here in verse 5, he says, you know, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Now, if you're not careful, you can almost just read over that verse and keep on going. But what that verse is talking about, if you remember, Balak, you know, right there it says he was the king of Moab. 
he tried to uh, get Balaam to basically curse the people of Israel and say some bad stuff about them and uh, really tried to get a, a coalition together to destroy the Israelites just as they were getting ready to enter Canaan. That, that was his plan. He, he did not like what he saw. These, you know, who are these Israelites coming up? We've got to do something about them. Uh, if you remember, God caused Balaam to say something against his will, and instead of cursing the people, he actually gave them a blessing. And then the last part of this verse where it talks about you know, what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, Shittim was the last place that the Israelites camped before they started their campaign to go and go into and start fighting battles and take the promised land. From there, these, this uh, blessing that ultimately comes from Balaam, that's where that blessing starts to be fulfilled. They're crossing the different battles that they have. Everything that happens until they cross the Jordan River miraculously, they go into Gilgal and they actually establish their first camp in the promised land. So Shittim is, is the last camp outside of the promised land. Gilgal is that first camp that they have in the promised land. Once they make that camp at Gilgal in the promised land, this is where that, that generation that had wandered in the desert for 40 years, this is where they're circumcised. This is where the covenant is renewed with God for that generation of people. You know, they're, they're finally in the promised land. The covenant is renewed. Finally, they're coming into their own. Finally, that promise is beginning to be fulfilled. And so what the Lord is recalling to memory here is, hey, remember this. Remember how this coalition was forming against you, how even though this Balaam was going to say something and curse you, I miraculously caused him to bless you instead. And then the things that he said happened exactly the way that they would happen. This coalition was destroyed, the Midianites were destroyed, and all these people that came together with them. And here you are in the promised land, established, covenant is renewed. Remember these things. And then it closes that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. The idea is that what God is saying here is I have provided you with all these righteous acts. I've given you all these blessings. I have given so much to you. I've done all these things. I've delivered you. I've taken care of you. You've been my people. I have fulfilled my part of the covenant to you completely in every way. I have done everything I said I would do to you. And how have you treated me back because of that? Why are you doing these things to me? It's implying that the people of Israel have broken that covenant. God is still fulfilling and doing all these things for them, but they're not keeping their end of the bargain. They're being wicked. They're lying. They're deceitful. They're doing all these things against the law that God has given them. And he's still taking care of them. He's still treating them with righteousness. He's still blessing them. But God has had enough, and he's trying to call it to their attention, and he's saying, look, why are you doing these things to me? Look at these things. Remember these things. I've not done anything bad to you. Why are you acting like this? Why are you trampling on the law that I gave you, that precious law that came from Moses? Why are you doing this? And so in the face of that testimony, in the face of what's going on, and, and this, this overwhelming argument that God places before them, he recalls these things to memory, uh, there's really nothing that the people of Israel can say. There's nothing that they can say is like, well, you know, there was that one time, God, when you really let us down, or this or that. You know, they they realize, yeah, okay, we are definitely in the wrong here. God has taken care of us, and we've messed up. But look at the response that they have in verse six and seven, because it, this is where it changes a little bit. These first these first five verses is is basically God presenting His case against the people. Now in six and seven, we see the people of Israel respond back to the prophet. 
Okay, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Now, when you first read that, you kind of think that, well, you know, basically the people are saying, what can we do to appease God? Clearly, we, we've transgressed, we've, we've broken our covenant with him. And you almost get the sense there that the guy is just, all right, what, what do we have to do to just get back in good graces with God? What, what is it going to take to, uh, to, you know, to get out of trouble and, and be with God? You know, how, how many animals, you know, let's, let's get the checklist together. How many animals and how much, how much oil, um, you know, let's, uh, let's get the calves and the rams together. Let's, you know, let's figure out the amounts. We'll offer those up and then we'll be all good, right? Is that, you know, how much of that is going to take? And then they even go so far as to say, you know, even if that's not enough, will we, you know, will we have to give and offer our firstborn? They're talking about offering their children as human sacrifices to appease God. So you drill into that. You look at those two verses there. What that shows us, that answer from the people and from the children of Israel, shows the, the, the total lack of knowledge that they had about God's word. Particularly there, and you, you really see it, at the end of verse 7, where it says they're talking about, you know, shall we give our firstborn for our transgressions? You know, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Human sacrifices. Uh, if they had studied the law, if they had kept up with the law and, and really tried to understand it, if you look over in Exodus 13, flip over there real quick. Exodus chapter 13. Look at verses 11 through 16. Exodus 13, 11 through 16. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when, in time, and when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animal. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, for all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontless between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And what that passage there in Exodus tells us is that the firstborn, you know, the firstborn in any family was supposed to be redeemed. There was never any provision for the firstborn to be sacrificed. And what that illustrates here is really two things in this response. Really just they fundamentally had completely forgotten about God's word. They, they really just it shows how far they've gone away from law to be, to, to be to the point where they would offer their own children as sacrifices to appease God. They were so influenced by the idolatry around them, they just had drifted so far. And then you also really see just a bit of an attitude problem. It's like, all right, what is the prescribed number of things that i got to sacrifice to kind of get out of trouble, kind of be back on God's good side? And, and, and that you can see how that's just the wrong attitude. But then look at the response to that answer in verse 8. He has told you, old man, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Ouch. Here they are. They've just spent all, you know, these first two verses talking about, well, you know, what are all these great sacrifices and things that we're going to have to do that we're going to have to put together to appease God? And basically he says, I don't want any of it. I don't want any of it. What, what does the Lord require here? He talks about justice, kindness, and walking humbly with God. Those three terms there, what the Lord requires, is really painting a picture of being righteous, of exercising love. Uh, as we've kind of mentioned a little bit already, you know, people were pressing, the rich especially, uh, and a lot of the things that Micah says are addressed specifically to the rich, because at this time the rich were definitely oppressing the poor. They were taking advantage of their fellow brethren. Uh, they were not treating them with love. They were acting out of greed, and they were really just pushing down people who had less or didn't have the same means that they had. Um, basically, this is a direct indictment of Israel right here because they were exactly the opposite. They were not just. They, you know, Later on, passages in this, before and after in this chapter talk about uh, scales that are uh, not fairly weighted. Um, you have things that you know, they're mean, they're violent, they're lying in wait, they're setting traps and snares for each other. Um, and they're certainly not going to be humble if they're doing those kind of things. They're, they're watching out for themselves, and they're doing what they want to do. Uh, they're just not being righteous. They're not exercising love. And, and God was not going to, you know, it doesn't matter how many sacrifices they offered, how many rams, how many calves, how many rivers, of, you know, thousands of rivers of oil were offered. God wasn't concerned with the physical part of what they were doing to be appeased. He wanted the morality to be right. He wanted their spirituality to be correct. He wanted them to have the right attitude. So, you know, sometimes when we hear people say, oh, you know, God was really, in the Old Testament, he was really mostly concerned with the physical things. You know, he was mostly concerned with outward actions. You know, now in the New Testament, it's all about, you know, the spirit and how we think and our attitude, too. Not really. Because we see right here, even in the Old Testament, God was concerned not just with all the outward sacrifices, but with the attitudes and how people acted and what they were thinking. All those things are wrapped up in this concept of, of justice and kindness and walking humbly with the Lord. The other thing is, you know, ending there with the walk humbly with the Lord. The idea is that you know, if you're walking humbly with the Lord, that you're, you're in a good relationship with God. That covenant relationship is being maintained. You know, God's blessing them. He's treating them with righteousness. He's fulfilling his end of the covenant. And they're doing the same thing back to him. That's the picture that's painted there. That's what the Lord is trying to tell them that he's requiring of them. He wants them to give them back as much as he's given to them. He wants that covenant to be working in accord. He doesn't want it to be just a, just a one-way street where he's just doing all the giving and, uh, and they're just doing all the taking. They have to do something and give something back. So let's kind of make a couple of... Uh, couple applications out of that, and then the lesson will be yours this evening. First thing is, how can we possibly hope to contend with God? And what we see here is the, the Lord immediately lays out a devastating case against Israel. There's no room for argument here. It's, it's absolutely clear from the very beginning that God has been taking care of them. He's done all these wonderful things for them, all these miraculous things for them, things that they saw and that they've heard about, things that were recorded for them to read about. And they didn't study it. They didn't stay up with it. They didn't stick around with it. And ultimately, that has gotten them in trouble. 
We don't ever want to be in a position where we ourselves have to contend with God. And it's very easy for all of us to make the same mistakes. You know, we can get comfortable. It's like, well, you know, I've, I've studied this particular thing enough for a while. I don't need to study it anymore. You know, you can get complacent and feel comfortable. When you get complacent, you get comfortable. That's when you're, you're, you really introduce a lot of risk and a lot of danger because you're not aggressively pursuing that knowledge anymore. So we can't get too comfortable. We don't want God to be contending with us. We never want to be in this situation where, where God is, is bringing an indictment against us. Uh, and the other thing I want us to think about, really, and this is the final point, is that uh, just like Israel, God does a lot for us. He's always fulfilling things for us. He's always blessing us. He's always treating us, us with righteousness. He never fails in that respect. And unlike the people of Israel, we have something even better. We, ha we have a much better advantage. Yeah, they saw miracles. Yeah, they had lots of things happen. They had these great prophets that came and led them. We have the whole message of God. We have it all written right down here in the Bible for us to read. All we have to do, all we have to do is pick it up and read it and study it. The message is right here. We have so much access to it. It's right there. All we have to do is just reach out and grab it. You have to reach out and grab it and study it. It's right there for us. And the other thing that we have is that, you know, God gave his son for us. We don't have to worry about offering sacrifices and follow all these, these physical rules to remind us of our sin. You know, we sin now. God, God has given us the ultimate sacrifice. He's shown us the ultimate act of righteousness. He's given us this great promise of salvation through His Son because He sent His Son and His Son died on the cross for our sins. Are we grateful for that? Or do we just play lip service to God in Christ? Think about that now as we stand and sing.